0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? Very good, Gary. Thank you. And how are you? Oh, I've been good. I've been spending my week looking at uh, various studies that have come out over the last while to see if they hold up. And? Who are they? Um, in an academic sense, Michael, one might say that they are uh, wanting.
1: Right. And, okay, we're, we're, we're talking one study in particular here, are we?
0: Oh, no, no. I've actually, I've, I've been looking at a number of them this week um, to, to see what I can come on. There is one in particular I wanted to talk about, one about uh, conversion therapy, which was paid for by the Department of Education. Yeah. But there was a little story I wanted to bring up first, Michael, kind of as a segue into it. We've done a lot of, of, about the media and the uh, research paper I want to talk about, that was reported in the media as well, and that's part of the issue with it. But I just thought, we've talked a lot about why people trust the media, why they don't trust the media, and how the media could rebuild trust. So I was very interested to see, Michael, to uh, see that the Irish Times, you, Linehan, in the Times, has published an article on that. It's titled, Why is trust in media declining? Maybe it's not us, it's you. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see.
1: Sorry, yeah, I saw this. Uh, I saw this headline and which... Intrigued me, because my first reaction was, no,
0: I'm fairly confident it's you. And The basic gist of the article, and it's kind of a wandering article, but he says, he's talking about a guy who tweeted something out, and he says that guy is probably right when he says that the main problem with journalism today is the news reading audience, which doesn't agree that the purpose of journalism is to bring information to light. Then he says people aren't seeking you know, actionable intelligence about the state of the world, and don't care that much about accuracy. Which is interesting, because if Linehan believes that that's a problem, and that newspapers are chasing after this, it could, Michael, be read to have some reference to the internal standards of the Irish Times. You see? Yeah, yeah. I think, let's say, where he goes on to quote someone else, uh, and says the who says the misalignment between profit-seeking and democracy's need for a well-informed public, that in today's competitive free-for-all for eyeballs, clicks, and ratings, the result is informational anarchy in which truth is hopelessly outmatched. Which, again... If Linehan thinks both of these quotes are accurate, he could be read to reference the place he works. But I I actually think the article contains, Michael, a fantastic example of why you shouldn't trust the media. (laughs) Which is? He says, they're talking about the, the level of trust in America, and he says that trust in media has declined in Ireland too though at 52%, it remains relatively high in comparison with other European countries. Now, Michael, if I were to say that 52% of people trust the media, you would probably assume, I mean, that 52% of people believe the media, like, strongly believes the media reports the truth.
1: Yes.
0: That would seem fair,
1: right? Sorry, can I just cut across you there for a second? Did you say 52% trust the media? Yes. Sorry, which, what survey is that based on? Because... It- I remember a survey that was taken last year, not that long ago, which had the media being had, was it either on the par with politicians or slightly below politicians, but it was in the 30s. Ah,
0: you see, Michael, that was journalists.
1: Okay, journalists, right, sorry.
0: So, but I I went and had a look at the survey that was carried out that shows that 52% of people believe strongly in the media. And it's interesting, Michael. Because on one hand, what was said was absolutely correct. Yes. But when you go there and what what it references, a question that they put to people, I think you can trust most news most of the time. 6% of people strongly agree with that in Ireland. 6%? 6%. 46% of people tend to agree.
1: Forty-six oh, percent tend to agree that most of the news is true most of the time. That seems to me to be a little bit away from a ringing endorsement, but okay.
0: I mean, it's it's not, Michael, shall we say, wrong. It's not something you can't back up. Mm-hmm. But it does seem to be a little bit odd to say, you know, uh, 52% of the public trust the media and not mention that 6% of of the public strongly trust the media and 46% of the public, yeah, like they'll go with it. Maybe, they tend to agree with you, but maybe no great strength behind that.
1: Also, there's not a lot of nuance to this. Maybe it's not their job to do nuance. Maybe it's not important nuance. But from my memory of the studies or the surveys that they've done, there is a substantial difference, for example, between the trust that people have between the privately owned or the print media, say, for example, and the news as reported by
0: RTE. Yes, there is a massive, massive difference between them. Uh, But the point I I think it's worth making to people here is this. These are figures that are deliberately picked and that journalists have the ability to pick at will. So, for instance, 7% of the population strongly disagrees that you can trust most news most of the time, which, by the way, is the correct answer. (laughs) 17% of the population tend to disagree that you can trust media. And the question I would ask is this. And it's not really about you. It's about the power that journalists have in this instance you take the six and the 46 and you you get a majority but the question to ask yourself is if this was a different journalist talking about distrust in the media would they give the 24 percent who tend to disagree and strongly disagree or would they give the seven percent that strongly disagrees because i suspect that's what they would do and there's tons of this sort of stuff all over the place where numbers can be cut and sliced and presented in different ways, which can support particular positions, but not don't have to be misconstrued as such. You can always explain it, it's always acceptable. But you do that over and over and over again, and you start running into a question of well, are the people who are reading you actually giving getting an accurate idea of what's happening? Yeah. Not a major thing, I think, Michael. Just something to note, and I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that him was trying to mislead people, no. just that oftentimes when you see a figure and you think, you know, that's the figure, it's worth looking what that figure is made of.
1: Yeah, there may be other figures that are also interesting that he could also have chosen but didn't.
0: Yeah, in the same way, Michael, if you're making a piece about how, you know, trust in media in Ireland is relatively high, you don't want to have to say something like 6% of people trust the media most of the time. Yeah, no. that's kind of embarrassing. Yeah,
1: it's not great. But listen, listen, yeah, I think I don't know if it was Eric Hobsbawm or somebody like Eric Hobsbawm talking about the writing of history. Said, you know, yeah, people say, that, you know, history should be impartial and biased, and it's simply about, you know, telling the truth, telling the facts. But when you write history, the problem is it's not the facts, but which facts you choose and the weight that you attach to the particular facts. And by Selecting different facts, if they're all facts, but historians can produce very different outcomes uh, in their explanation of historical truth by placing different weight on different facts and choosing different facts altogether. And you know that happened. That will happen with journalism as well. That's inevitable.
0: So let's go on to this report, Michael, an exploration of conversion therapy practices in Ireland, coming from the Trinity Schooling School of Nursing and Midwifery, and paid for by the Department of. Let me try if I get this right, Michael, the the full thing. Children, equality, disability, integration, and youth. I don't think we've slapped anything onto that since I last looked at it. I think that's the lot. It's a lot. So this was a piece of research commissioned by the department and by Minister O'Gorman, which was explicitly said to um, to have been commissioned in order to be used to inform the government's policy on conversion therapy, because Michael, as we all know, they've said that they will ban conversion therapy. Now, let's put aside the question of what exactly is conversion therapy, because there's the old type of conversion therapy that people think of when you say it, and there's things like not affirming a child who says they're transgender being classed as conversion therapy, which is the new hip definition of what constitutes conversion therapy. Okay, you are leaving that aside, yes? So... The news media covered a couple of things about this report, various claims that were made in it, including one claim from someone that they underwent electroshock treatment, which we'll touch on. But no one, Michael, other than Griped because I wrote a story on this, which I'll link below, reported what I think is the most important single paragraph in this. Okay, and that is? So this is a, there was a full report and a, a literature review, but the majority of this report is a survey. Of experiences of conversion therapy. Mm. The survey used a non-probability sample and is therefore not statistically representative of the wider LGBTI plus community. It's a non-probability sample. It's a non-representative sample. Yeah, they didn't use it a probability, so it's non-representative, which means it doesn't rep- it, it
1: it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the experience of the LGBTQIA community in Ireland today.
0: Which is quite interesting, Michael, because the aims and objective, which I understand were put together by uh, these academics and the department hand in hand, three of the four uh, objectives that are stated are impossible to achieve with a non-representative sample. But Gary, speak to me as if I was a
1: member of Congress or the Dáil. Why would you not do, I mean, if you're getting paid by the Department of Children and Fun. To do a survey or a study, a piece of research like this, why wouldn't you do it in such a fashion that would actually mean that it was representative of that community? Probably that would be the more productive thing to do, more informatively. It tells you something about the community and its lived experience and what is that today. Why Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, is it just is
0: it just much harder to do that? I can't see into the hearts of men, Michael, so I can't tell you exactly why you wouldn't do that. I just—I'll explain this briefly and and explain the issue. For those who aren't aware of this, in when you are surveying, you have a representative sample, which is basically a sample that matches the population. And so, if you hit the required numbers, you can take those results and you can apply them to the larger population. So, you know, if ten percent of people say something had happened in the sample and it's representative, you would expect ten percent of the entire population uh, who match that sample. Would also have had a a non representative sample. The results cannot be used to tell you anything about the experiences of the population at large.
1: So a representative sample, for example, would be if we're talking about not specifically this case, but generally speaking, it would break down and it would be it would reflect the same breakdown in say in sex or age or geographic distribution or maybe economic achievement or educational achievement. So you try in your sample to mirror the population that you're trying to study.
0: Absolutely. And and people go to great effort to do this. As to whether or not it would be more difficult, Michael, there are a number of very well-respected firms in this country, commercial firms, whose only purpose or, well, their primary purpose is to produce research, ask questions to a representative sample and they put great efforts into acquiring people to ensure the samples are representative. Oftentimes you you wouldn't use them because that would cost money and depending on how strict your criteria are and how few people would match that naturally, basically the amount of effort they have to go to, it can be quite expensive. But if you've got the government backing you, it's absolutely not a concern. I mean, the, the
1: central point is that this particular research is not representative.
0: No, so nothing can be taken from it. And nor, and nor, it's important to point out,
1: nor does it claim to be. It explicitly says that.
0: Yes, absolutely, exceptionally clearly on page 71. Right, on page 71, <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: You put that maybe, you might have put that in the executive summary.
0: I mean, some people might have put that a bit earlier, yes. Okay. But... They do mention it, clearly, on page 71, which I believe is the not the last page of the document, but the last page of the work before all of the indexes and things. You asked why it was designed like this, Michael. I can't tell you why it was designed like this, but I can tell you who designed it like this. And that is very interesting. So what these guys did... Sorry, this was, this was designed
1: by a group of academics at Trinity, wasn't it? <laughs> oh.
0: Oh, you poor summer child. No, it was designed with a group of academics in Trinity. The buy is, is actually a fairly open question here. So what these chaps did is they set up a research committee that would, Michael, uh, advise them on things like the design of the survey and how it should be disseminated and who should take part in it. And on that group was the Department of Education because they were paying for it, Michael. Yeah, that's reasonable and then three advocacy groups, and then at least one person who worked in psychiatric services. So there were, sorry, three advocacy groups. Sorry, again, not to be
1: disingenuous here, but as regular listeners, should there be any of this podcast, no, Gary is much more, I read the reports, but much, occasionally I understand them. Occasionally I am much like a cow looking in a bush when it comes to the methodological fine points of these things, would it normally be best practice to involve advocacy groups in the methodological end of the construction of a piece of research like this? And you might say, oh, well, you, know, you shouldn't do it or all that, but is it is it maybe not best idea, but something which is just basically standard practice that people do it all the time? Or is it kind of a, whoa, lads, you shouldn't really be doing that?
0: It would traditionally be seen as highly unusual to involve an advocacy group with the design of your work? Most people would go very much the opposite way, Michael. Now, you could argue there are certain circumstances when you want to reach out to a population that is very vulnerable or very difficult to contact with, that you would go through an advocacy group, and that has a whole host of problems associated with it. Well, you, in this particular case,
1: you know, maybe that's an issue here. You're talking about a small group and... uh a vulnerable group and a group that maybe isn't that fond of sort of being in the public eye. And maybe that was the reason why you would go through an advocacy group in this
0: case. Yeah, but here's the thing. Even in those cases, you go through the advocacy group. In this case, they allowed the advocacy groups onto a, uh, an oversight committee effectively. And they don't say how much influence this committee had. But given the people who were paying for the research were on that group... One would expect it had rather a lot of sway. And they didn't just give them guidance on the survey, Michael. They also helped prepare the interview guide, which is the document you give to your researchers before they sit down to interview people. And they also gave them advice on how the survey should be given out and how they should find people to interview for the survey.
1: That last point seems to me to be problematic. But I know about the others. And the others, you know, you could ask, But the last point, they they kind, in a sense, they directed the research towards people in a sense that they had selected or that they were aware of already. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Now, they also say that the representatives on the advisory group, which again are primarily advocacy group, used their own networks to maximise responses and that these advisory groups these 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 advocacy groups Michael were reaching out to other organizations about this research in their own name now here's the interesting thing lgbt ireland which is one of the groups on the advisory board and which is a group which is campaigning for the banning of conversion therapy LGBT Ireland had recently appointed a campaign officer for their Ban Conversion Therapy campaign. This campaign created a steering committee which also supported the recruitment of participants and promoted the research. That reads to me, Michael, as if these guys went to a campaign officer, not a research officer, a campaign officer, allowed him to set up a committee and drive participants through the committee which was a subgroup of a campaign to ban the thing that was being studied.
1: On the face of it, Gary, and I, please correct me because I, I, we, we like to try and be accurate if not impartial, is that kind of analogous to setting up a, a research group to look at the, for example, look at the idea of opening up exploration for natural gas in, on, the, on the continental shelf and then including somebody who was part of a group which was advocating for Ireland's energy independence on the basis of exploiting our natural gas resources.
0: Yes, and then giving them deep internal control. That
1: sounds like a conflict of interest on the basis on the face of it. I mean, that's not to say that the people didn't act in a perfectly correct and ethical way. But if you're just looking at it from the outside, there would appear to be a conflict of interest there.
0: Yeah. And here's the interesting thing about that, Michael. The survey design they went with was anonymous. Now, that's fairly common in areas where there's some sensitivity, which obviously you could could say there are here. Yes. There's two ways to do Well, there's a couple of ways, but two main ways to do anonymous surveying. One is where you collect the information required to verify, but nothing ever goes out to the public which contains that identifying information. Right. But you have it internally and you can chase it up. And, you know, if you have a hundred responses, you might take a random amount of those and have people reach out to make to verify. Basically, that's not the approach they chose. The approach they chose, it appears to me, and they don't include a copy of the survey, so I can't actually tell, but from what they've written, it appears that they asked people if they were willing to be interviewed, and if you said yes, they would collect contact details, and if you said no, survey you were allowed to complete the survey without giving any, any identifying information or contact information. Now the problem there Michael as you know is that means that anyone who wants to could do the survey say whatever they wanted knowing that it could never be verified or could complete it multiple times which opens you up to all kinds of problems and then they give control over the survey and who would access it to activists and advocacy groups the people most likely to do that is is there a
1: mechanism in this to stop a person doing this survey 20 or 30 times?
0: It does not mention there being any. And even if there was one, without any requirement to give verification, it could be gotten around, or with trivial ease.
1: If you were a professional polling company and you were using this kind of approach, I'm begging a question there, which is would a a reputable polling company ever use this kind of approach? Because surely this leads you open to all kinds of potential skews in your reporting, because doesn't it's, I'm not saying it's the same because it's obviously not the same, but you know one of the criticisms, for example, when people do online polls that you that online polls incentivize people who are already invested in the argument to go and vote because the, the, your sample size in sense becomes self selecting because the people who are interested in the issue are far more likely to find the poll and to answer the poll rather than doing a, a representative sample of the population. And therefore, people who are interested, less interested, not at all interested, and and you get you get a, you get a re- a reasonable representation of the population. But do, isn't that going to skew your answers, or at least doesn't it represent a serious danger that it's going to skew your answers?
0: Yes, it does, and it's actually when I look at research in Ireland that's bad. Usually, that's the primary issue um, that they have opened themselves up to a selection bias that only certain people are going to do it. In this case, though, they've opened themselves to that bias and then put the parties who would be most interested in getting a particular result, given that everyone involved wants this thing banned, and given them oversight of it. Now, again, Michael, that's not to say anyone acted improperly.
1: Can you answer me this, then? We, okay, we'll we, 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 we leave, in a sense... The, the, we've done the introduction to the methodological problems shall we say for, for but there's a couple of things that struck me reading uh through it briefly that the the time parameters in it, right? And then the reports. Like you mentioned um for example that one person reported the use of electroshock therapy. Now what we're trying to do here is look at the problem insofar what the insofar as it exists of conversion therapy. As they understand that to mean today in Ireland or in the recent past in Ireland. Now, one part: do we have timing? Do we have a kind of a chronology about when things happened that are reported in this? People report as having happened or have their experience of it. There's a 25 year in the last 25 years that they're mostly looking. I mean, and but it, it's not clear to me that all of the things that are reported of as having happened actually fall within that time period. Is that, is that right or am I misreading
0: it? Yeah, so in parts of it, they say, well, we're going to stick to the last 25 years. And they actually give a very good reason for doing this, which is that, one, they want to look at the modern experience of it because that could still be going on, or even if it's not going on, it's still in, in, in recent history. And when you start going back, you start running into areas where, Uh, conversion therapy was more seen as a a standard medical approach, and that's just not the world we live in. So it makes no sense to get experiences of that when we really want to focus on what can be done now. That's what they say about the interviews. But then the surveys have a category of people who underwent conversion therapy 30 to 40 years ago. And then they have people who, who don't give a date, but they still include them. Now, if you actually limit this to people who have have undergone this within the last 25 years, you actually move from a sample size of about 270 and then 35 people said that they had some experience with this, you move to somewhere in the region of 21 to 24 people that this survey, not even shows, but 21 to 24 people claim they underwent conversion therapy. In Ireland, in the last twenty five years
1: now one thing again, I noticed I was talking about the chronology thing is that and so I missed this was there did they graph the incidence of this over the last twenty five years in order to establish a trend uh, that do we have a sense of how frequently this happened in the last last year in the last five years in the last ten years it, or is it that all of, most of these incidents are largely clumped? In the period starting 25 years ago, and that we're seeing a, a trend where it's effectively disappeared, or is it a constant trend? I didn't see. Uh, I didn't see any anything on the trend.
0: So they they don't. There's no sort of trend map or anything like that. They do give you an idea in broad categories of you know within 10 years. The problem I have there, Michael, and this is this is um, not something I can show to be wrong. But I find the numbers very odd. So for instance, how long ago did you undergo any sort of conversion therapy? One to five years, 11 people said so. Okay? That is as many people as said they had undergone conversion therapy between 10 and 40 years ago. And actually, if you include those if you include those who say they're still undergoing conversion therapy, of which there were five, that brings us to 16 people. Who say they're either experienced it in the last five years or still experiencing it? That is more than everyone else who gave it time, Michael.
1: And what is this? And maybe they don't, they don't address this, but what is this conversion therapy that these people are experiencing?
0: That is also a bit of a problem. A lot of this is about what it can be classed as conversion therapy. But then when you actually you you try and go into okay, well, what did people actually say they experienced? It's actually very very vague.
1: So, for example, if, if if somebody came up to me from my local church, from the local a prayer group, and said that they were going to pray for me to pray the gay away, would that count as being offered conversion therapy? Uh,
0: yes, I, I believe it would under this. If somebody coming up to me and say they're going, they, go- they were,
1: would would I like to? the local group to pray pray the gay away for me, and that would fall into the category of being offered conversion therapy. It would seem to be the implication of that is that if they went ahead and did in fact pray for me, but then I would be in fact, in, that would be conversion therapy.
0: Well, there's there's no copy of the survey, so I can't tell you.
1: It seems unlikely because then what you'll be doing if you were to ban conversion therapy, you'll be, be passing laws telling what people could pray for. You know, which would actually be a little bit ridiculous.
0: Yes, but there are actually some interesting uh, findings in this, but it's also interesting what they leave out. So, for instance, they ask people, what was the impact of, of going to this thing? And 57% or 58 say it didn't work for me and I don't believe it worked for others. But a large part of this is about how conversion therapy doesn't work. And they, they go into it in detail, Michael. They, they refer to insidious methods of, uh, conversion therapy, which is not a great word if you want to sound like you're not an activist. But that means, Michael, that, yeah, 42% of people either didn't respond or, or couldn't say or thought it worked, which is a bit of a weird thing. And they don't really go into it at all. There's a lot about this doesn't work absolutely, but you would think then you might go, And now we will explain why so many of our respondents felt it did work or um, had some impact anyway. That's an odd one. 57%, shall we say, only
1: 57% said it didn't work.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, you know, something, you know, another 16% didn't respond or preferred not to say. You're only looking at about, you know, 15% who said it did work and, you know, Maybe twenty percent who say it, you know, it it either worked or I believe it could work for other people. Yeah, maybe they ended up by the other quite interesting one that they didn't take stats on, that they only did qualitative work on is um har- or well, I presume they may have actually asked quantitative questions about this and just not given them in the report, but they have a section on the harmful effects of conversion therapy, and um, that's all as i said quantitative uh, qualitative stuff there's no stats and i wonder if they didn't ask the question or they just didn't include the question what happens if you want to be converted interesting point they made every gay man that they talked to about it in detail said that they had voluntarily sorted out mm. which again is interesting um i'm like the entire like reading this we can keep going through and there's loads of weird stuff in it the feeling I got was that this was an answer in search of a question. That there are so many weird methodological things about it that you'd have to question why they were done. And if you had wanted a negative response, as negative a response as you could generate, but you wanted something that on the face of it would stand up to the sort of scrutiny that newspapers would give you, this is about what you'd do. Maybe slightly more effort. I I didn't go through the... um. Literature review, which is quite long and could be of relatively high quality, i don't know because I work on the general assumption that if you've made this much of a balls of your methodology on something else, I'm just not going to trust what you say in another section, but that could be high quality it could be fine, and they just screwed this part up i mean i i i can, I kind of
1: understand the the impulse behind it i mean you can you can imagine a scene very situation where somebody is finds themselves be attracted to the same sex and for whatever his familiar or religious or cultural reasons or personal reasons they're deeply unhappy with this you know and they really really want to change and you can imagine there might be deeply unscrupulous medical practitioners out there that if they went to them and they say I really don't this is not who I am this is just the way I was born but I don't want to be like this there could be people out there who would maybe give them massive doses of hormones or perform surgeries on them to change them in some way, that would be deeply damaging. And obviously, that'd be a very bad thing, rather than helping them to come to terms with their sexuality. I mean, I know that sounds like a bizarre kind of thing. You'd say that would never happen in Ireland, it would never happen, you know, in the developed world. But I can see that, you know, they, that could happen. I mean, or they could go off to foreign countries where these things are legal. But but, you know, you, you have to be proactive, Gary, because you don't want people to, young, vulnerable people to end up damaged because unscrupulous people are willing to take advantage of their psychic
0: distress. I mean, you could say that, but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> now, the report does, by the way, talk about the fact that a ban on conversion therapy could actually have impact upon the religious. Um, because, as you said, Michael, there, there are religious ceremonies, there are prayers, there are things like that which you could either deliberately or inadvertently ban if you didn't word this appropriately. But, Michael, they tell us it's not going to be a problem. No. Well, they say, Michael, the right to believe religious scripture about the nature of sexuality and gender identity is protected by international rights legislation, but the right to inflict potential harm based on religious teachings to change or suppress sexual orientation and gender identity or for other faith-based reasons is not. I see. So, you know... That's fine.
1: Yeah, that is that 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 is fine. I think it's very important that we should remember that you know just because you you have a sort of religious or ideological belief, in other words, you can't inflict harm
0: or damage on people. That's important. And actually, you like this one, Michael? Well, I some of the participants in this study were also concerned about the role of self determination and the rights of individuals to seek out conversion practices, even with the knowledge that they are ineffective and potentially harmful. Oh. Which is something that is noted, that an amount of the people who underwent these practices and didn't believe they worked, didn't believe they should be banned, either for religious freedom uh, reasons or for other reasons to do with personal autonomy. But, Michael, however, Bula's and González-Canton, 2022, argue that even when consenting adults seek out conversion therapies, these practices are inherently debasing as they pathologize and stigmatize LGBTI plus individuals, promoting the belief that they are somehow inferior to their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts, which is tantamount discrimination. Countries, therefore, have an obligation to enact enact legislation that protects and upholds the full range of human rights for LGBTI plus individuals. Which is a wonderful way of saying, well, it doesn't matter if people want it. Yes. Well,
1: it's a very really simple way of saying is, it, mommy knows best.
0: Mm-hmm. Imagine that, Michael. The government allowing people to do things that were ineffective and potentially harmful? Couldn't be having that. Couldn't be having that. That way lies
1: madness, Gary. That way lies madness. I will also point out, for the sake of clarity and and honesty, sometimes mommy does know best.
0: Sometimes fire is hot and the child will burn themselves. This is also true. But I I do, I just like the, um, I like the way they note it. Any time a concern comes up, they note it and then immediately, like the next sentence, is just always ah, but it's not a thing, though, is it? Well, like some people might say they want it, but it's just you know, it's it's uh, intrinsically demonstrating that they feel these people are inferior, and it's uh, therefore it's discrimination, and therefore we've got to make it illegal. You just sort of go, I feel like you've made a number of steps there, and just feel like you've condensed it down to a single sentence, as if we have to agree with you.
1: Yeah, but the thing is, Gary, no matter what you or I might say about this on this particular little podcast, this is going to be reported in the press and will be, I'm sure, replayed and and, and reviewed. And it will be research from uh, a, a group from Trinity shows, research demonstrates, research says, Trinity academics say, you know, and it will say what it says and it will do its job. And we will not we will not see any deep uh, deep dive into the methodological weaknesses or otherwise of the report or the research, and uh, it will just be presented as this is research from this highly respected and respectable group of academics from Trinity, and away you go. And let's face it, Gary, as I said to you before, when we were talking about this off air, as far as I'm concerned, in comparison to other pieces of research that we have seen that the government has based policy on. This is fucking gold standard. I mean, I, go, I will always go back to that. You know, do, you remember the, the, do you remember the thing they did on vaping with school kids that, that Simon Harris, I think it was Harris, wasn't it?
0: Oh, yeah. Six people. Focus group of six people. Good enough to say the industry is lying.
1: Yeah, six people. It was about flavors, wasn't it? Flavor, flavors in vaping. It was comic. It was genuinely laugh out loud stuff. And the minister stood up with a serious look on his face. I am convinced by this research.
0: God almighty. I I will put a link to it below because there's a couple of stuff we didn't get into here. Like the fact that the activist they had um, on that subgroup is actually an elected politician, which is just funny. Or the fact that LGBT Ireland's response to this coming out was to say the report published today confirms what we already knew. Which I felt was a bit on the nose, but you know, <laughs> have at it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they already knew. Yeah. Uh, uh.
0: When you look at the um, when you look at the, the reports, and I mean, Gay Community News managed to somehow totally misread it and as, read it as if 278 people had undergone conversion therapy, which Michael, they're off by about ten times. The Business Post said that the new study had found that members of the LGBTI plus community are still being subjected to conversion therapies, which is not what I found when you survey people, you don't find that the things that they have said have happened have happened. You just find that they've said they've happened, but whatever
1: sorry can we just I, and we we'll leave it with just with this point of clarification i i I think you addressed this already just but for the, for for clarity because I think it's an important point of the people who had experienced conversion therapy uh, in the last 25 years. What proportion of them had sought it out of their own volition and what proportion of them had, shall we say, in some sense, been coerced into this therapy? I
0: have no idea. The report has no sort of cross-tabulation.
1: Okay, so we don't know that. So it could be all of them were people who had gone out looking for it.
0: I No, there is there is some stuff on that uh, that it mentions during it. Um as I said, at one point, all of the gay men that they were talking to said they sought it out, but I think they note that that wasn't the case for the women. Um, so presumably there. There is actually one thing, one particular media report I want to mention, the Irish Times, Kitty Holland. The subheading, report by TCD, details practices including administering electroshock treatment to a 12-year-old victim. Now, that is repeated in the, the the body of the piece, Michael, in a sentence that contains the word allegedly, because, you know, no one has actually shown that this happened. Here's what the actual report says on that, Michael. On a footnote, on page 49, one participant wrote that he had been forcibly given electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, when he was 12 years old to change his sexual orientation and gender identity. That's and, it.
1: And gender identity.
0: It does not say, by the way, Michael, some of these people who said that they had undergone conversion therapy said that they had undergone it in different countries. So we don't know if it happened, even assuming it happened as uh, this respondent said it did. We don't know if it happened in Ireland. We don't know if it happened in Ireland if it happened 40 or 50 years ago. We don't know anything about it. And I find it notable, Michael, that the report has a note that this happened. So they thought it was important enough to tell people that this happened, but not important enough to give any contextualisation to it. And then Kitty Holland found it, which is interesting because, again, Michael, it's on the 41st page. Sorry, it's on the 49th page of the report in a footnote.
1: Well, she obviously read the report very, very closely indeed.
0: I mean, no one, Michael. Would want to allege that Kitty Holland has anything but a laser like focus on the raw facts of the case.
1: Absolutely. We know this for we know this from history.
0: And would never, you know, assume something, Michael, like, and just write it without checking it out. Um, that's not the sort of journalist that Kitty Holland is. But I do think it is worth questioning why they included that fact at all, given that they do not include any other facts about what was happening to people on that page. Mm. Yeah, they say the participants mostly describe being offered practices that were religious and practices that happened in the context of therapy or counselling, and then there's a footnote saying one person said they were given electroconvulsive therapy, which would seem to indicate that you know that that's a shocking claim, but then not bother to say, you know, did that happen in Ireland and within the last generation. But fuck it, Michael. Who has time for questions like that?
1: Who has time? Anyway, Gary, before we get to the because if we did this last week, we got nothing else done again. So let's, we have a few little stories that maybe we can squeeze in before we re- release the dear listeners. Um, Roll Dahl, you want, you, you are saying that people have been doing bad things to Roll Dahl. I,
0: I, I've i seen something about this. I mean, Roll Dahl is dead. I doubt anyone can do anything bad to him ever again.
1: Well, shall we say to Roald Dahl, uh, Roald Dahl's, Oeuvre.
0: Yes, Penguin Books are coming out with a new uh, approved version of Roldal's work, and they've had the sensitivity readers in. Michael, I have to say, I
1: was unaware of this as a thing. Mm-hmm. Sensitivity readers, I like. I, 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 I I've, I'm aware that there have been books where certain words, particularly, say. Racial words, uh, the N word, as we say now, and maybe sometimes sexual swear words of certain kind have been excised, you know, black marked out. But this is rather more than that. This is a kind of almost like a rewriting, which is a problem because Roland Dahl was kind of good at that thing, that writing thing. And whoever was doing this, because there are some examples of rewriting, of some of the rewriting online, and they're just not as good as Roland Then again, in fairness, if you're as good as Roald Dahl, you would be working as a sensitivity reader, I
0: imagine. For instance, I'll give you some examples, Michael. <laughs> some changes they made, because some of them are just funny. So the original, this is from The Witches, was, Don't be foolish, my grandmother said. You can't go around pulling the hair of every lady you meet, even if she is wearing gloves. Just you try it and see what happens. Now this, I would imagine, is in the context of the fact the witches in that book are bald and wear gloves. Because I think they have claws. It's been a while since I've read it.
1: They're they're bald and they have wigs. Therefore, if you pull their hair, their wigs come off, yes.
0: That, in the new version, Michael, is... Don't be foolish, my grandmother said. Besides, there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs. And there is certainly nothing wrong with that. Yeah. There's another one where they say, I think they're talking about the same topic and and how you can't interfere with people, basically, to see if they're witches. And the original was, even if she is working as a cashier in a supermarket or typing letters for a businessman. In the new version, that is, even if she is working as a top scientist or running a business. (laughs) Yeah. But the weird thing is, like, they they remove certain words. Like, they, they removed the word fat from... Uh, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory when they're talking about Augustus Gloop.
1: He is uh, no longer fat.
0: Well, he's fat still. That's the thing. They, they remove some of the words like fat and describing his size as monstrous, but leave in the general descriptions of him being really fat. Call him enormous. Yeah. So, and, and they're talking about like the bulge of his body, but you just can't call him fat. And I mean, this has happened before multiple times. Rewriting a books is nothing new. But the point I would make very quickly, Michael, is... You know, the patron saint of rewriting of books, the the boulderization of books, is a chap called Boulder, who uh, rewrote Shakespeare.
1: Boulderized versions of Shakespeare. And we laughed and laughed and laughed.
0: Well, I think, Michael, there's actually a very important difference between what's happening now and what Thomas Boulder did. Yes, Boulder, actually, sir. He rewrote the books because he wanted them to be more popular. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he wanted to make them more approachable, more uh, up to time with the language because he wanted them to be more widely read. So I think that's people generally when they think of his name, they think as yeah you know, oh he was he was scandalized by them and therefore he wanted to um he wanted to rewrite them to destroy all that sort of thing. And yes, maybe there was an element of that I'm not really familiar enough with him to say there was no element of it, but it was primarily because he wanted to promote them. I don't get the sense, reading the rewrites of Roald Dahl, that these are people who have any particular love for these books. I mean, the, the rewrites also, by the way, are just badly written, mostly. It's also very funny that they got rid of all mention of uh, Rudyard Kipling and replaced him with John Steinbeck. Because, Michael, you know, what a child wants is to read about John Steinbeck. i big fan of John Steinbeck, but, like, he's dry. Whereas, like, a child in Matilda, initially, they're talking about Rudyard Kipling, which, yes, I can see a child enjoying the work of Kipling. Absolutely. No bother at all. You don't see many, like, 10-year-olds getting down with the Grapes of Wrath.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're reading Kipling... and. We all know Kipling is problematic for many, many reasons. But, for example, you've got The Jungle Book, you know, the stories of Mowgli, the him, all those. which you can happily imagine a child reading. The Grapes of Wrath of Mice. Do you want a child reading of Mice and Men? I don't know. I mean, I love Steinbeck. I really do. Cadbury Rose one of my favourite novels. The Old Man the Sea. I mean, a, he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. But, yeah, not, 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 not for kids. Well, not for most kids, anyway. And the, also, it's just odd. I mean, there's... I don't know. It's, is it a limerick or a curly or whatever? There's a wonderful thing that he wrote that... Uh, it's and, about And Spiker. And Spiker was thin as wire and dry as a bone, only drier. She was so long and thin, if you carry her in, you could use her for poking the fire, right? Now, first of all, I don't... I genuinely don't get what is problematic about that in the same way in the others I can kind of see what they're doing and not that I agree with it necessarily but I can follow their within their logic I can see what they're doing but in in this version and Spiker was much the same and deserves half of the blame Tara and Spiker although we never did like her it's sad but true if only she knew how the absence of charm can do so much harm. It doesn't scan, by the way. With thoughts so frightful, wood can't be delightful. And now worms will have spiker for tea. If anything, I think that's more upsetting as, as an image for a child. If you carried her in, you could use it for poking the fire. That's obviously an image. It's, it's a metaphor. And now worms will have spiker for tea. That's slightly Dalesque in a sense. I can see
0: the kind of protest, but I don't get the point of that. It's also it creates this weird situation where anything that's left in is now presumably fine. It seems like you're just like penguin is creating a stick to beat their own back. Because like they took out a section of Mr Fox where the tractors were described as being black. <laughs> they just it. It kind of looks like they've done a copy and and remove. Like there's part. Some of these changes are just like something is described as um, brown, and they just change it. It's sort of like it, it seems like you've got a very negative connotation to things being brown. Like they replaced a description of teeth being brown by saying they were rotted.
1: Mm, just, there can be no negative association with the word brown. Is that it?
0: It seems to be, but oftentimes it, it, it seems like you're
1: making it worse. Also, just this is a response to a particular cultural moment, right? These things are now seen as being problematic or unacceptable or whatever in this particular. I mean, maybe what it is is a fantastic commercial move that everybody will now get their children to go out and buy these versions of Roald Dahl. And in five years, because the problem is surely Gary that in five years' time or ten years' time. Five years on the basis of the speed of our culture these days, there will be a whole lot of new things that we will now find to be problematic in dad, and we can go back and re-re-read them with a sensitivity reader, and then produce a whole new set of role dads which are now suitable and acceptable for the children to be to read, and it's just going to create a fantastic industry for sensitivity readers because it can just be, it would be just constant process until. In five years, 10 years, 15 years' time, um, it would be basically impossible to read a book of Dal and recognise it. If you, compa- if you compare it to the original te- text, it'll be a bit like you know, the Gospels, where you've got the, what is it, the the Q text and the A text. I'm thinking of that linear B and linear, a, aren't I, they the Q text. You know, you've got these original, very ancient texts, and they devolve and coalesce and over until you get to Council of Nicaea in 322 or whatever it is, and we get the canonical texts for the Gospels. but, it's a, but you, And scholars work back and back, and that's what they'll do with these, to try and work on what the original text might possibly be.
0: I mean, to give another reference to, to Boulder, and, and you know, as I said, the famous censor, This another way that this is much worse, what Boulder did was he released it under a different name it was called the family shakespeare and i think that was because he i think he's something to do with his father reading it to him and his father had removed certain verses because they were a bit racy and that's kind of what gave him the um the idea of doing it and to be honest i don't think they're ever terribly popular but he did it under an entirely different name so there could never be any confusion for the originals so it's 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 actually always kind of annoyed me that it's put forward as this archetypal example of literary censorship. When, you know, what more could have been done to show that actually this is someone doing this as a, as a particular version without seeking the removal of the original? So
1: it was a parallel version, in a sense.
0: It was a parallel version that was designed to, you know, make things a bit more open, make it a bit less racy. I, I would suspect that at the time Michael they would say things like suitable for female audiences because there's a bit of you know, the old uh, in and out in Shakespeare you couldn't be having that in that time
1: Well I always love it, it, was, it nothing to do with this but I always love that comment I think was it the, was it the prosecuting barrister in the obscenity case? against D.H. Lawrence for Lady Chatterley's Lover, when he invites the jury, which I ima- I think at the time would still have been only men. I'm not sure about that. When he, he invites the jury to consider, is this the kind of book that you would want your wife or servant to read? <laughs> oh, those weak, frail creatures here, they would have been terribly upset by that scene with the flowers and the pubis. It would have been very... There was somebody... I'm sure I'm not making this up. Somebody did a tidied up version of the Bible. Took all the racy bits and the bad language out.
0: It's just cut the Song of Solomon out of it entirely. Well,
1: possibly that was put into you know, the
0: Apocrypha. Not suitable for children. So again, this is significantly worse than boulderisation. It adds things. It rewrites the uh, author's words. It removes things entirely that it just finds displeasing. And it is now the official version replacing the version before the interesting question here michael is for those people who have access to this on kindles and you know digital services i wonder if that update comes through automatically because if it does it's going to be a shit show
1: <laughs> yeah like an automatic update
0: like youtube being on your phone except now the entire work of uh... <laughs> it's just gone um, that, that's another thing that Boulder didn't do and specifically one of the things he said he wouldn't do add anything he just removed things so that it could be read in a family setting or you know your servants Michael as you said um, yeah worse than Boulder significantly worse great work team and I'm sure someone was incredibly well paid for this the thing about it is of all of the children's
1: writers you could possibly think of the one that one would imagine would be most outraged by this, you, know, you think he's, he's actually rolled out, isn't it?
0: I have not seen any person on the left, the right, libertarian, totalitarian take this well. Everyone hates it. Um, I'm just waiting to see them try and do this to Doctor Seuss, because then at least they're going to have to put the work in. What there has been, no, no, that Doctor Seuss has already come under some scrutiny. I remember was. Nothing like this, like a comprehensive review and rewrite. At least not that I've seen. No, not not, 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 not to this stage yet. But Dr. Seuss is under investigation. I'm
1: sure, I, I believe children still read C.S. Lewis, you know, Narn, the Narnia stories, they'll come in for some work. Enid Blyton, now I would actually say, to be honest you, first of all, I don't think Enid Blyton is, shall we say, of the same literary quality, but you, know, you could actually do a little bit of work on some of the Enid Blyton stories.
0: Well, e- Enid Blyton, even during her life, did a little bit of work on some of those titles. Some of them were pretty bad, and also Agatha Christie had a fa- had uh, famously
1: there was a book which uh, I think uh, is now ten little. No, I think it became Ten Little Indians, and is now then there were none. But in the original title, it wasn't Indians, and uh, there is actually I. I it's a harmless enough thing, this is a harmless enough thing, but there's a film, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but there's a film called, it's quite quite a good film, it's it's about the Battle of Britain, and it has all, uh, just a plethora of English movie stars from sort of the 50s and 60s, and that kind of period, it's got, uh, I think Laurence Olivier is in it, uh, Richard Burton, obviously, Welsh, Christopher Plummer, all sorts of people, anyway, Christopher Plummer is a, is an RAF. Of, it's about that sort of twenty four hours of the Battle of Britain, and he, uh, Christopher Plummer has a a chocolate Labrador, a black Labrador, uh, whose name is in fact is in fact that word. And if you see that film now, and the thing about it is I remember watching that film as a kid. Frankly, anything involving World War Two, I would watch it again and again. Battle of the Bulldro. Right? It didn't matter. I loved them all, and it's quite funny because when the dog is called, it's just edited out. It's not replaced by anything. You know the way for when they do the Sopranos for say airplanes or something. It's um, forget about it. it and uh, you, I can't remember. There's there's a phrase they use for mother something, and it just it's so funny because it makes absolutely no sense at all but they don't do that they just take it out and if you know it's there if you didn't if, if you didn't know it was there you would never know about it it has just been excised i think it happens three or four times in the film but in the for the modern audience it it has been excised I have no problem with that i think that's a reasonable thing to do it's based on a rhyme which starts 10 10 and it goes down and then there's nine and the uh, it, it's a the problem is of course a problem of rhyming Anybody who is my age knows, for example, how E meeny miney mo used to go when we were children, but it no longer goes that way. No. Nowadays you catch a tiger by its toe. We didn't we actually didn't know what the hell we were saying. We genuinely didn't.
0: Apparently it's uh, it's it's one of Christie's best selling books. It's actually
1: I think one of our best books in a way. It's there's a there's a kind of a menacing creepiness to it. It's an absolutely classic Christine locked room mystery in the sense that instead of being a locked room of course it's it's an island and they're cut off but there's that mystery and it's the A and other thing it it, it it holds up pretty well and there's quite a decent black and white movie made of it but there is a kind of a, a, a claustrophobic creepiness to it that is very effective. Anyway um, we just about finished that so I think it, we will have to postpone yet again whatever else we might have wanted to talk about and say have a good Sunday and a good week, and we will be back uh, next week, all being well. All the best.